0: This podcast contains strong, strong language. If you prefer a bleeped version of this podcast, then why don't you jolly well go away and jolly do one your jolly self? All right. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out
1: and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke My name is Adam Buxton, I'm a man I want you to enjoy this,
0: that's the plan Hey, Adam Buxton here How are you doing? Happy New Year everyone I think technically you can say that up until July the 1st, right? Just out uh, walking through nature with Rosie. She's up ahead. See if she'll come and say hello. Rosie! 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 Come and say hello. Rosie, come and say hello. Rosie, come and say hello. Rosie! Rosie! Come and say hello. Here she co- Oh, she's coming to say hello. Run very fast, and then when you arrive, say sausages. Hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. Can you say sausages? No. Um, Just trying to prove that I am actually walking with a real dog there, rather than talking to an imaginary one, which I have done in my life. So look, welcome to podcast number 13. Now it's been over two months, and I've got to say, I don't think much of David Bowie's new phase I think he should go back to the earlier, more alive stuff. Some ironical levity there. To cover the fact that, like most people, I was taken completely by surprise. Not only by the manner and the timing of David Bowie's exit on January 10th, but also by my response to it. And uh, let's face it, that's really the, the most important thing, isn't it? But seriously, it blew a hole in me. And into that hole rushed real sadness, actual heartache. And I have to assume that that was partly to do with the fact that my father had just died six weeks earlier. And then after Bowie's death, I really felt as though I'd lost my two dads. I don't know how I'm going to deal with it when Paul Riser and Greg Evergan die. <laughs> Ah, they were in a TV show called My Two Dads, which you would only have seen if you're over 35 and your life went wrong. Anyway, I didn't really feel able to join in with the Bowie tributes back in January because I just felt too mental. But I really liked hearing other people's reminiscences, so I felt like I wanted to contribute too. And now, of course, my whole life is is fairly Bowie-shaped at the moment. I'm doing live bug bowie specials where we show his music videos and other related nonsense i'm doing those around the country here and there at the moment and of course there's this podcast too which i've split into two parts because i thought just one long part would be rather unwieldy so in this first brilliantly wieldy part i'll be wallowing through my response to the zeth of zavid and considering what some people saw as a kind of hysterical overreaction to the whole thing. Um, This includes a short contribution from my dad, my late father, Nigel, a.k.a. Bad Dad, who pops up in digital ghost form. Uh, You'll also hear from a Bowie fan who got to see another side of his hero, and you will also hear briefly from actor and Big Brother obsessive Kathy Burke, about how the worlds of Bowie and reality TV collided in the week of his death. So that's in this first part. And when you finish part one, part two will be waiting for you. And uh, that features a a few insights from the director of Bowie's last two music videos for Blackstar and Lazarus, Johann Renk. He uh, Skyped me. ...and told me about what it was like working with Bowie in those last months. There's also a rambly Bowie-related conversation with uh, Jonathan Ross... ...TV and radio personality and fellow Bowie obsessive. And at the very end of the second part of the podcast... ...The Mighty Gaz Coombs has recorded a brilliant cover of one of my favourite Bowie tracks exclusively for this podcast he put it together in his home studio and it's uh, it's really great anyway thanks very much for checking out this podcast it's a bit of it's not a typical one Um, the rest of the run of podcasts for the next few weeks will be more straightforward uh, conversations rambly conversations with various people but you know I I had to deal with the Bowie stuff So let's deal. Here we go. On the morning of Monday, the 11th of January, 2016, I got up and checked my emails on the toilet while brushing my teeth. I need to multitask, because I'm important. There was a message from a friend that read simply, Adam, just woke up to the news. I'm so sorry for you. So I thought, oh great, now what's happened? Something that's national or international news that has a direct bearing on me personally. So what's that? Someone's secretly filmed me dancing naked to Party Pom Pom and it's gone viral? Well, it was bound to happen. Why do I never draw the curtains? Or maybe ISIS have kidnapped my mum? Or what? Well, probably someone's died. But who? Oh God, please not any of the Kardashians. So I looked on the BBC news page and there it was. It was David Bowie. I felt quite matter-of-fact about it at first. It wasn't a total shock. Rumours about his ill health had been circulating for a while. I just thought, well, what a shame. But what strange timing. Just days after his birthday and the release of his album Black Star, as if he'd planned it that way. "'Isn't that just like him?' I thought. Outside the weather was grim, but Rosie needed a walk, and so did I, so we leaned into the incipient rain and trudged up the track behind our house. A car approached, my wife returning from the school run. She pulled up, wound down the window, and put out her hand. "'Oh, love, everyone's playing his music on the radio.' All at once I was overwhelmed by the urge to cry. I gave my wife's hand a squeeze and, feeling out of control, marched on up the track and into a field, a bedraggled Rosie shaking her head as she slouched along behind. I often make voice notes on my walks. Here's a bit of the one I made that morning. Hello. Today is Monday the 11th of January 2016. David Bowie died... And I feel genuinely sad. <laughs> isn't it strange? And I never knew him, you know. What is it? Why am I so sad? I don't understand. It's so weird. You know, it's totally mad, isn't it?
1: Why am I so sad?
0: Never even shook hands with the guy. <laughs> Saw him in a corridor once at a veil. Vale stood next to Jonathan Ross and Ricky Gervais. That was my that was the closest I got. But uh he was my pal. Right the way through since I was about 10, I suppose. When I was at uh, a school <coughs> Now I'm thinking about... (laughs) Come on, old man crying voice. Fucking hell. I'm thinking about... About Transformer. That's the thing. It's like when Lou Reed died, (laughs) I was not crying. I think it's because I did love Bowie personally, you know? I just thought he seemed like a nice man. And I did love him in a romantic way. As a youngster, I thought he was so... Beautiful and exotic and lovely looking. He wasn't all bristly and sporty. Fuck all that. He was like a, a lovely hybrid. Just to be clear, I've always loved Lou Reed's music and I felt very sad when he died. And I've also come to respect sport and bristles. I don't want like, a big fight with the sport and bristle fraternity. But I've never had an emotional connection to those things the way I did with Zavid. And as that day in January wore on, it became very clear that, of course, I wasn't the only one who felt that way. Sean Keevney on his six-music radio show sometimes sounded like he was struggling to keep it together. Messages of love for Bowie poured in throughout his programme and Lauren Laverne's thereafter. I went to try and start some work, but I got distracted by Twitter. It was a grief arama, the kind of thing that would have baffled my dad. He wasn't a fan of public displays of emotion, especially in the media. I remember the evening of the Paris attacks in October 2015. I went to check on my dad and found him watching BBC News 24 and looking glum. I asked him what he thought about it all, and he replied, I think the coverage is as bad or possibly worse than the attacks themselves. I told him he should tweet that and see how it would go down, but he decided against it as he'd forgotten how to use Twitter. He felt that the facts of this kind of tragedy should be presented dispassionately and that individuals should be allowed to judge for themselves how to feel about them. I agree with him about that. He also felt that the media increasingly encourages public displays of emotion at times of tragedy and he found that distasteful. He was from a generation that valued keeping it all tucked in over letting it all hang out. That was also his policy on shirts and willies. Back on the morning of Monday the 11th of January, radio and TV news programmes began getting in touch with me. Desperate to pad out reports on Bowie's death and aware that I was a mega-fan, they were asking if I would speak about his influence and say things like, he made it OK to be different, he was the chameleon of pop. He was always on the cutting edge. But I didn't feel like going anywhere. Perhaps I'll say something on Twitter, I thought, especially as a lot of people were sending me sympathetic messages and sharing links to footage of Bowie in his prime that were making me more and more emotional. What to say, though? I don't want to be too soppy, but I don't want to be glib. Does the world really need another tribute, though? But I reasoned I was taking comfort from other people's messages, so perhaps someone might take comfort from mine. With eyes brimming with tears, I carefully composed a heartfelt tweet. Before pressing send, I stared at it for a while, considering whether it could possibly be interpreted as racist, sexist, transphobic or an expression of male privilege. I really couldn't see how it would, so, with a click, I gifted it to the grieving masses. Here's what it said. Isn't life tough? Bowie always made it better, and will continue to do so long after we've shuffled off. I absolutely love you, Zavid. Almost immediately, I began to regret the tweet's cloying aspect, and could imagine it being read in an entirely different way. And what a sad day it is. Keep those sad messages coming in. we got one here from Adam Buxton in Norwich, who says, Isn't life tough? Bowie always made it better, and will continue to do so long after we've shuffled off. I absolutely love you, Zavid. He's misspelt David there, but never mind. Here is the chameleon of pop himself with Absolute Beginners. Actually, if someone had read it out like that, I would have been pleased. That was very moving. But the overwhelming outpouring of Bowie-related grief and the attendant media hagiography was too much for some and later in the afternoon i started to see messages from people who found the whole thing insufferably insincere self-indulgent or just annoying times newspaper columnist camilla long tweeted so many people quotes crying or quotes in bits over bowie and then in caps she writes fuck you you are not 10 you are an adult man the fuck up and say something interesting Admittedly, that's what I say to my 11 and 13 year old sons when they start complaining about having to switch the computer off, but I don't know if I would say that to someone who just expressed sadness over a person's death, even if I doubted their sincerity, or believed that they were merely responding to what Camilla Long, quoting Julie Burchill, calls sob-signalling. Regrettably, if unsurprisingly, Camilla Long then spent the next few days reaping the crazy online whirlwind as angry mourners, hurt by her comments, did their best to hurt her back. On the plus side, for her, she was able to get a Times column out of the experience, entitled It's the Freakiest Show as a Lynch Mob of Bowie Blubberers Chases Me Online. Many of the comments beneath the article are typical of the kind of opinions I heard expressed in the weeks following Bowie's death by people fed up with all the hysteria. Here's one that says, Unfortunately these days many people feel the need to show the world how upset slash indignant slash virtuous they are as a way of making themselves feel good. Another says, I liked Bowie's music but let us remember he was just a singer and at times someone pretending to be someone else. Open brackets, i.e. actor. Close brackets, for which he was handsomely paid. He did not, as far as I'm aware, change society for the good. I know many people who devote their time to help others for no remuneration. Those are the people I shall shed a tear for when they die. And finally, here's another comment from a fellow who says, Possibly my favourite live concert of all time is Bowie's much derided Glass Spiders show in Sydney in 1987. But he's not the soundtrack to my life. My children were, and still are, as too are the other people, other music, movies, TV shows, and all other things that fill your senses as you progress through the years. It's great to really admire someone, and I was certainly saddened by his passing, brackets, and yet another reminder of my own mortality, close brackets. but to say that someone whom you've probably never met was your whole life is just melodramatic, self-indulgent tosh. Now, with that last one, I more or less tuned out after he said his favourite live concert of all time was Glass Spider, which I also saw at Wembley Stadium in 1987, but don't think I enjoyed it nearly as much as he did. But I do kind of know what he's going on about, and I remember feeling something similar when Princess Diana died. I was making the Adam and Joe show for Channel 4 at the time, and we had drafted in my dad... Bad Dad, to review a selection of chart singles. Elton John's Candle in the Wind, re-recorded in tribute to Diana as Goodbye England's Rose, had become the fastest-selling single of all time up to that point. And for my dad, that summed up everything that was wrong with how many people had reacted to Diana's death, as he makes clear in this outtake from one of his Adam and Joe show reviews in 1997.
2: The popular reaction to it was an undignified, unrestrained, gut reaction to something which uh, stirred uh, the emotions. And uh, not to say it didn't stir them profoundly, uh, but the expressions of uh, sorrow or the expressions of regret were not expressed with any dignity, uh, with any profundity, but were expressed with uh, monumental uh, superficiality as witness the high priest of pop John Elton uh, in uh, Westminster Abbey. It was all part of a pop hole, and ironically a whole which was uh, stage managed produced by the very forces which uh, we are told contributed to the tragedy itself which is to say the uh, tabloid uh, press and with the tabloid press all those who then react to the tabloid press, the commentators, the television presenters, the producers of the television programmes. And the whole thing uh, 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 snowballs, the whole thing becomes a cascade of cheap sentiment.
0: You see, it's all John Elton's fault, isn't it? Anyway, suddenly, there I was, nearly 20 years after Diana's death, a middle-aged Bowie blubberer surfing the cascade of cheap sentiment, along with every media outlet that wheeled in pundits to trot out the same soundbites about Bowie's genius, every magazine that rushed out Bowie specials, and every high street store that blasted out Bowie's biggest hits. But honestly, it didn't bother me. After all, you wouldn't do very well as a Bowie fan if you were upset by things that were occasionally crass. The trick that week was to concentrate on what was most interesting about him, which, for me, tended to be the most obscure stuff. For this, Twitter and YouTube came brilliantly into their own, and I followed link after link to clips I'd never seen before. Bowie in 1979 goofing around with Kenny Everett after a performance of Boys Keep Swinging. Or in 77, miming to the hero's instrumental track Sense of Doubt for an Italian arts programme. Or in 1983 politely admonishing an MTV presenter for marginalising black artists on their channel. Perhaps most satisfying for me were some clips from a 1997 documentary called Inspirations by Michael Apted, in which several artists, including Bowie, discuss their creative process, in one section, David demonstrates a piece of software he's created with a friend which scrambles words and phrases to emulate the William Burroughs text cut-up technique that he showed off in the documentary Cracked Actor in 1974. He's named the computer programme The Verbisizer. With a combination of bluff and shyness, Bowie shows us how he uses the verbicizer to write lyrics and gamely tries singing the resulting word bollocks over improvised avant-garde rock jazz. You may not have witnessed the birth of a classic Bowie song, but you have witnessed an artist still unafraid to let experimentation lead the way, even if that way is down a little cul-de-sac behind a jazz club where they keep the bins and all the jazz people do their wee-wees. In those days after Bowie's death, I also found myself reading dozens of blog posts, which, like most of the newspapers that week, featured personal anecdotes about how people's lives had been affected by Bowie. British satirical magazine Private Eye ran the headline Bowie made it possible for all of us to be completely different, says everyone. Then, beneath, it listed the contents of an imagined 94-page tribute special, that included stories on the Bowie I knew, the Bowie who knew me, the Bowie who I didn't know, the Bowie who didn't know me but would have liked me if he did, the Bowie who influenced me, the Bowie who I influenced, Bowie and me, me and Bowie, and finally, me and me. It was a good swipe from Private Eye, but like Camilla Long, it seemed to be dismissing all the anecdote sharing as self-serving and superficial. No doubt some of it was, but with a career as long and varied as Bowie's had been, he ended up being important to a lot of people in all kinds of different ways over the years. Now he was suddenly gone, those people reached out to each other to share stories that offered surprising perspectives on someone that us fans felt we knew, even though, of course, we really didn't. Of all the personal stories flying around that week, the one that cheered me up the most was on a blog by a competitive ultra-marathon runner turned professional poker player called Dara Okani. He was nice enough to respond when I asked if he'd talk to me about Bowie for this podcast. And on a Skype call from his home in Dublin, he told me about his relationship with David.
3: I became a boy fan when I was 18, um, which uh, was the year I left school and left my parents' home, which I think is a big year for most people. It's kind of a, you know, that's one of the summers that you remember. And that summer was the summer that I got into boys' music. Um, I'd heard Let's Dance on the radio, I'd seen the video on TV, went and bought the records, uh, loved the album, went back to the record store, found to my surprise that he actually had all these other records already.
0: What was it like being a Let's Dance fan and and drilling back into that older stuff? Because it's so different and so strange.
3: Yeah, tremendous shock. Uh, I mean, even like even visually, I remember being in the record store looking at all the records and going like this can't be the same person this just doesn't even look like the same person you know yeah. you've got blonde david bowie in a suit or shadow boxing on the cover of let's dance and then you you've got ziggy stardust um or diamond dogs and all the different looks and then i bought the albums one by one and in varying degrees my, my reaction to them all was almost the same it was like i would start listening to it and going what on earth is this garbage it doesn't even sound like music to me and then I'd listen to it for two weeks and end up loving it but that was basically how I spent the summer just sort of catching up with all of his um, stuff so by the end of the summer I was a pretty big boy fan um that continued on to the next few years and it kind of went past the music to the point where anything that was written about him i was interested in reading you know this is pre-internet so it was actually harder to get stuff back then so you know you had to buy physical books magazines or whatever but the more i read about him the more intrigued i got because it wasn't just that you know i thought his music was the best but his whole approach just seemed so different from the other stuff that was around so i became a pretty uh, obsessive fan over the next 10 years or so
0: so right the way through the 80s and on into the 90s, that would be.
3: Yeah, yeah. So then the early 90s come and I guess the next big cultural development was the, the arrival of the internet. And the, the early days of the internet was sort of, um, it was different from what it is now uh, in the sense that there were, well, first of all, there were far less people online
0: um, yeah, there were only it was just weirdos.
3: Exactly, no, pretty much weirdos and you know people who worked in in technology. Yes, tech,
0: uh, tech weirdos rather than um, the kind of weirdos you get nowadays.
3: Exactly, exactly, and like it was pre-social networks, pre all that stuff. So the way it kind of sprung up was uh, there was email uh, where you could email people. There was uh, Usenet groups, which was this weird sort of news group network where people set up different um, news groups to reflect their interests. So. For example, there was an old .fan .David Bowie, um, and that was the main point where people spoke about uh, Bowie on the on the internet at the time. And then gradually, over time, websites popped up as well. Um, so by this time, I had read pretty much everything that had been written on Bowie, or at least everything that I could find. So um, I, I, I retained a lot of information about him. So. It kind of went from me reading, seeing what other people were writing to, somebody would ask a question, I would have read the answer somewhere, so I'd give the answer, and that was kind of how it proceeded. I was, you know, somebody who answered questions about boy online.
0: Right, so you became a kind of star pupil in the uh, Bowie discussion groups. Yeah,
3: exactly, yeah. It's funny to think of it now because, you know, everybody's on the internet now. But back then, again, it was a much smaller subset and and, and people were drawn to different things. There were people like me who were basically train spotters, I'd say, I guess you'd almost say, who were looking for information or sharing information. Then there were other people who were, you know, playing around and impersonating celebrities. There were people who were... Right, early incarnations and- of trolls exactly that's yeah the, the whole troll thing yeah so yeah like a lot of my social life started revolving around interactions with fans then and 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 the um the fan sites started teenage wildlife um and uh, boy wonder world and a few and a few other fan sites and and there was a lot of interaction there as well um so i knew a lot of fans personally and uh, interacted with them i was still going to boy concerts uh, whenever he toured buying all the albums and all that stuff um, and then in 98, I believe, around the middle of 98, he launched uh, what he called BowieNet, um, which was basically his own internet service provider, um, where you know, fans paid a subscription fee and they got their internet access to his, uh, his provider. Um, now, I was actually quite critical of that at the time. I never I, understood I, why
0: he did it, because was that before or after he did his Bowie bonds and things like that?
3: It was after he had done his Bowie Bonds. Bowie Bonds was sort of mid-90s. Uh, this, this was a separate thing. And the way I saw it at the time, um, which looking back was a little unfair, but I basically just saw it, oh, he's just turning his, uh, his fan site into a pay site and charging people for access.
0: Right. Cash grab, as my son would say.
3: Yeah. yeah. So I was really uh, quite vocal in my criticism about this. Then I started getting these emails from somebody speaking from uh, Bowie's perspective, more or less along the lines of, well, what, what are your actual problems with Boeing? Why are you so um, exercised over the issue? Uh, because you like, were
0: voicing your disapproval on the site itself, were you? Or not in- on
3: the actual site, because I never actually joined the site, but on the other fan sites that were around at the time. Right, you
0: on- you were just saying, what the hell's we doing with this? What's
3: the point? Yeah, and there, was, and, and, and there was a very active debate going on. I mean, I, I wasn't the only voice. There were lots of people who, you know, also had the view, yeah, this is just a cash grab. And then other fans arguing, no, no, this is different. This is, you know, Bowie providing something for his fans. And um, there was there was basically like a large split uh, in, in the fan, in the online fans, at least, and a very active debate going on. And I would have been probably the most vocal person on the uh, the anti-Bowie net side.
0: And so what was this person, how were they um, explaining the, the whole Bowie net thing? What was their argument for it?
3: Um, their argument was that it wasn't just a fan site that was charging money, that there was another dimension to it. Um, that Essentially, the argument that was presented was that BowieNet was kind of what the social media became afterwards, social networks like um, Facebook. It was providing a place where people could uh, interact, um, a platform for all of that, and that that cost money, so therefore had to be charged for and, um that was the argument that was presented that it wasn't just purely a fan site.
0: Did you have a suspicion at that point that you may be talking to Bowie himself?
3: My initial reaction was no this is this isn't Bowie this is some very clever impersonator uh, because people had had written to me before in the past and and either said I'm David Bowie or tried to imply that they were David Bowie and and they were always pretty bad impersonators. Um so my initial Uh, reaction to the emails was oh this is just a very clever impersonator it sounds like Bowie it's expressing views that you would expect Bowie to express in the way that you would expect him to express them Um, but obviously it can't be Bowie himself because why why would he be uh, you know getting involved in this stuff yeah
0: he's got a life
3: Exactly. Exactly. So, but then it kind of reached a point where the the, the discussions were um, were so intensive. I thought, well, actually, maybe you know, there's the, 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 some possibility that that this is actually Bowie, or perhaps somebody in his camp, yeah, uh, who, who who understands his viewpoint and uh, wants to see what the what the counterpoint to that is. Um, probably, like a, a really big moment for me was um, I think late '99. He did a. A famous interview with Jeremy Paxman on BBC um, TV and he spoke extensively about the internet in that um, interview and pre- all the points he made were points that this person had made to me or had, that we'd made together uh, in the course of our email correspondence and there were some of it, it was literally like word for word line for line so that that was the point which I thought oh, oh shit this might actually be going now
0: and did you say, was your next message then um, like, hey, is this actually you? Or did, or did you never actually call him out explicitly?
3: Basically, I sent him a message saying I saw the Paxman interview and uh, I'm, I'm actually starting to think now this might be you. You know, one of the things we were talking about was how, how quickly we thought the internet would, would take off. Because at that time, even in the late 90s, the numbers were still quite small. Most people weren't on the internet. and And the question was, you know, how long was it going to take to the point where we're at now, where pretty much everybody's on the internet, even grannies are on Facebook. Wow. And at the time, a lot of the lo- technological experts were, were saying, oh, it's going to take 50 years, it's going to take 100 years, uh, or it might never happen, it'll, it'll just be a kind of thing that only a certain age group and demographic does. And I made the point to him that <clears throat> technology experts always underestimate how fast technology catches on, because they're just looking at the, sort of the early picture and early adapters tend to be a very small subset of the overall population. And they don't understand that it can just suddenly explode from that base to a point where almost everybody is is involved. And the example I used was uh, the first president of the telephone company in the, in the States. He gave a speech in the early days of telephone, and he made a very bold prediction that within 20 years, every town in America would have a telephone. And that, that, that was as big as he could see the market ever getting. Uh, You know, every town would have one telephone. Yeah. So my view was the internet was going to be something similar. There would be a certain sort of critical mass point where it would just suddenly explode.
0: Here is Newsnight presenter Jeremy Paxman talking to Bowie about the internet in 1999.
2: You don't think that some of the claims being made for it are... are Hugely exaggerated. I mean, when the telephone was invented, people made amazing claims. I for it know the NGs, president, for example.
1: The president at the time when it was first invented, he was outrageous. He said he foresaw the day in the future when every town in America would have a telephone. Now that what how dare he claim like that. Absolute bullshit. No, you see, I don't, I don't, but I don't agree. End... I don't agree. I think the internet, I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society both good and bad is unimaginable.
0: The fan in you must have just been exploding your mind must have just been
3: melting wasn't it oh totally yeah no it was it was a huge thing it was like, like I mean I, I was a massive fan I mean at the end of the day and, and that was uh, that was one aspect but the other thing was like because I had never assumed that I was actually talking to Bowie the, the correspondence had a certain character where you know I was quite cheeky and in in some cases uh, derisive um, because I didn't think I was dealing with Bowie I yeah. thought I was dealing with an impersonator Um so so yeah it certainly changed the character of the communication afterwards
0: did it <laughs> and um do you think that he noticed that and that he sort of thought hey hello why are you suddenly why have you gone all respectful
3: yeah yeah I'm pretty sure he did because uh, he like, probably
0: he probably liked it that someone was being cheeky with him
3: possibly yeah and I mean I, I still try to be cheeky on occasion but it's <laughs> yeah it's very, <laughs> it's very difficult when you think it is actually David Bowie
0: of course Um
3: I'm sure he did notice it. Like the, the weird thing is, he was always extremely respectful. I mean, yeah. I think that, that that was just his personality. He was he was a naturally respectful person. Um,
0: so he never rose he never, to the bait. He never got tetchy with you.
3: No, that was that, that was quite a remarkable thing because uh, you know when I'm arguing a point, I could I could argue the point very vehemently and uh, sometimes quite personally. And uh, but he, yeah, like you say, he never he never really rose to the bait.
0: Wow, that is impressive, isn't it? I mean, um, I wonder if he remained that way throughout his um, uh, remaining years on the on the Internet, because, boy, that's not easy to do, is it?
3: No, it's not. No, it's not. It it, it seemed to me like he was genuinely massively fascinated by the Internet yeah. um, from, let's say, the years of 95 to 2003, 2004. And he spent a lot of time on there when he wasn't working on other stuff. Um, And clearly, it was the kind of thing that he sort of went on for a few hours every day. But I'm pretty sure his interest did wane over time. Um, And certainly after he had his heart attack in 2004, it seemed like he just sort of lost interest to a large degree in in the internet.
0: So after the Paxman interview, were you suddenly thinking, oh my God, I can ask him anything I want? Or were you careful?
3: There was sort of a period of that where I probably asked him too many questions about his own work, um, thinking, oh, this is brilliant, I can ask him anything. Um, I quickly got a sense that he wasn't that interested in that sort of stuff.
0: Right. But do, do you remember the kind of things you were asking him?
3: Yeah, just different aspects of his career. You know, what was the inspiration for this? Or, you know, what's the link between this and this? Uh, is this a reference to this writer? You know, all very train spotty. So, I, like, I don't think that was very interesting to him. And, that, and that's perfectly understandable. The last thing he wants is, is 100 questions on songs he wrote 25 years ago. So I quickly got a sense that wasn't very interesting to him. So, you know, I would still ask him occasional questions when, it, when, when I was intrigued. He seemed much more keen to talk about any work that was current, let's say, rather than something which was from the 70s. He was generally happy to talk about his inspirations, uh, what he was reading at the time, what he was into, what he was watching. I was fortunate in that like my favorite writer is Samuel Beckett, and and that was one of his favorite authors as well. So we were able to talk quite a lot about that. So there there were certain areas where we had sort of commonalities of interest. And then there were other things that like he would recommend. I'd go back and watch old English comedians. Um, so I'd go off and buy the video and watch it, and then then we'd talk about that.
0: What kind of things did he recommend? Do you remember?
3: Uh, I remember the first thing he ever recommended was uh, Tony Hancock, uh, a thing called The Blood Donor, which is actually, it's so old it's before even I was born. <laughs> that's, that's how a, old it was. That's
0: quite a famous, I mean, that's a classic.
3: Yeah, well, I'd never heard of it. I mean, this is this is how clueless I was on yeah. <laughs> classic, classic British comedy.
0: If that had been me, I would have been watching it, thinking, "Oh Jesus, I hope I like this, so I can infuse about it."
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think our sense of humours were very similar. So, I I don't remember him ever recommending anything to where I and like humor is so personal because even now, like, I have friends who say like, "Oh, you have to watch this," and then I watch it and I go like, "I didn't laugh once. What on earth do they see in this?" Yeah, but that but that never happened with him. Um, uh, So, yeah, I think our senses of humour aligned reasonably well. And it was mostly sort of classic British comedy, let's say, that he liked, um, you know, Tony Hancock, Pete and Dud, uh, The Goon Show, all that sort of stuff.
0: Yes, of course, because he and, I read that he and Eno would do the Pete and Dud voices when they would be in the studio.
3: Yeah, I think they were probably his favourites. There were a lot of references to that.
0: What about TV stuff? Was he ever, would you talk about TV as well?
3: yeah yeah we talked quite, quite a lot about tv um i actually remember mentioning your show to him and he had seen it oh the adam and joe show the adam and joe show yeah from what i remember one of you guys used to get your dad on
0: that's right that was my dad nigel that was your dad was yeah.
3: It? yeah well yeah that was the part he particularly liked i think he uh he, he used to get a kick out of that uh yeah so he, like he watched quite a bit of tv um but he read Incredible amount. I mean, he always seemed to be reading three or four books, and I couldn't really keep up with him on that front, to be honest. He'd say, like, you should read this, and then three days later, you should read that. And it was like, if I read all this stuff, I wouldn't have time to do anything else. So um, I think he was a voracious reader himself.
0: I I said before that he provided me with a kind of roadmap, um, certainly musically, that you would go back and investigate other bits of music, either because of people that he'd worked with or people that he'd name-checked, and almost invariably there was something intriguing and likable about those things. I mean, very few times, I think, have I followed up on something that he's talked about and got nothing from it, you know?
3: Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, no, he definitely steered, marked our cards really well and all that stuff. Um, I mean, there's a lot of my favourite artists now that um, I really got into because he had essentially approved them. What kind of people? Uh, you know, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, Velvet Underground, and then moving forward, uh, Arcade Fire, you know. Through all phases of his career, it, it seemed like he was uh Kraftwerk in the 70s. He, he was always looking around and and making judgments and recommendations.
0: Yes, that's right. And it was so exciting as well when my interests would uh, join up with his. Like when we were at school, um, me and Joe were big fans of uh, Thomas Dolby. And, you know, I was aware of Thomas Dolby because he was in the charts. She blinded me with science and wind power and all this kind of stuff. But um, me and Joe got seriously into his albums. Golden Age of Wireless and The Flat Earth especially were big ones for us that we very much unironically loved. And then when Bowie did Live Aid, there was Thomas Dolby on keyboards. And uh, of course, Thomas Dolby produced Prefab Sprout and we also loved them very much. And so it was like, oh my God, different sections of our world were suddenly connecting and it was so exciting. And uh...
3: Uh, Yeah, I think that was one of the great things about Bowie. You, you didn't feel he was just a pop star pushing his own catalogue. It seemed like he had this sort of, cultural world uh, of which he was a part but not all of it um, and there were all these other artists that he that, that he recommended and, uh, and, and was into as well and the whole cultural milieu as it were um, w- was interesting
0: did you tip him off to any amazing stuff and say hey look david uh, in future when you find something very funny you can just say lol and it means that you're laughing out loud and you've saved yourself a huge amount of time
3: yeah, this is like when we, whenever we discuss this sort of thing. This this was the kind of thing that he was much yeah. better at than I was. I would just know the technology, and I would say, "Well, this is going to happen," or you know, "We're going to move away from email, and we're going to move move towards this weird new thing called social networks, where people are going to live their life out on the screen in a different format, because the access speeds are going to get so much faster that suddenly it's going to be all about pictures and videos rather than you yeah. know text. Um, And he was really good at anticipating this is what people are going to use the Internet for. uh, And this is how it's going to affect the culture. And music is going to become less important because people are going to be far more focused on the Internet. Uh, One of the things I remember he said, which was striking to me, was he said that, like, the reason he went into music in the first place was that he grew up in an era where music was central to the cultural conversation. Music was pretty much it. If you made it as a music star, you were the biggest star that there was. And by the Naughties, he didn't feel that that was the case anymore. He thought that music was sort of moving backwards towards uh, being almost a cultural backwater. Hmm. And I remember him saying that, like, if I was starting now, meaning the noughties, I don't think I would go into music. I think I would go, I, you know, I'd be an internet entrepreneur or something.
1: I'd be
0: a like professional that. troll. Um, <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. And so how did your... Relationship progress? Then did it progress at all when you were communicating online? And how did it um, conclude? Did you converse with him right up until his death?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, it went from let's say, I guess, late '99 after the Paxman interview, to where I decided, yeah, this is this is almost certainly a boy that I'm talking to now, and that that changed the character of it. But it continued on very um, intensely. Um, it kind of moved from. Uh, us talking about the internet mostly to us just talking about things that we were interested in um, uh, and stayed fairly intense up until I guess the reality tour which was 2003 so for the reality tour he came to Dublin to the Point Theatre to, to play two concerts and they were going to be filmed for the the concert DVD which turned out to be his last ever live album slash DVD um, so that was that was obviously a big deal for his Irish fans. They knew that the, the concerts were going to be filmed, and by then uh, his his popularity had sort of picked up again after a sort of a rocky spell in the '90s. Uh, he'd come back with *Heed*, and and that, and that was a very well received album at the time. And uh, so it, it, the, the the concert sold out pretty quickly. Let's say.
0: Is that your diamond dog in the background?
3: There? <laughs> it is indeed, yeah there's somebody wow. she doesn't like at the door i guess so yeah so he so he came to play two concerts they sold out really quickly now i was still able to get tickets because by then i like i knew so many fans and i, I knew the people that i didn't really think it was going to be a problem but he he sent me an email saying oh i see the the, the two shows sold out in uh, dublin instantly so um so i put your name on the guest list um so i thought okay well that's brilliant i mean even though i have two tickets i don't need to tell him that <laughs> yeah <laughs> any freebie is good and then I started having doubts again, thinking, well, maybe this is the punchline of the joke five years on now. This is where I go along on the night and say, oh, I'm on the guest list. And they look at me dumbly and go like, no, you're not. And <laughs> and whatever troll I've been talking to for the last five years uh, finally you know, gets the payoff. So I thought, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll keep my two tickets anyway. I'll go up. I'll try and see if I am on the guest list. And if I'm not, I'll I'll walk away with my tail between my legs and I'll come back later and use the tickets. And loads of fans were looking for tickets and and contacting me saying, can you get us tickets? And I was saying, well, no, they're sold out, so there's nothing we can do. But there there was one guy in particular who really, really wanted to go. He'd never seen Bowie, kind of felt that this might be Bowie's last tour. Um, and really really wanted to go so I thought okay well I'll I'll give him my tickets if I can get in for free so I arranged to meet him then I went off uh, to the point to to see if I was on the guest list Uh, dealt with some (laughs) very unsympathetic bouncers who um, were looking at me going like are you sure you're on the guest list? Why do you think you're on the guest list? and then they go off, they get the guest list and they find out that yeah there is actually a very short guest list and I'm on it um, so,
0: oh, what a moment! Yeah,
3: that was the, <laughs> that, that. That was the moment of relief. Was it? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm not utterly deluded here. Um, so yeah. So I, I remember running back, giving the two guys the tickets, and, uh, and and coming back and and getting in and watching the concert with my son. And it was an amazing concert.
0: You watched it with your son. Yeah. Wow, that was that's great. And did he play um, lots of good stuff, or was he? Was it one of those ones where he said, "Right, I'm just." I'm just going to play B-sides from my
3: new album. <laughs> no, it was really good. It was, it, but, but, but then he kind of, he went through that phase uh, in the 90s where he was just doing the current stuff and very obscure stuff because he had he had kind of announced the retirement of the, the hits, let's say. Uh, yes, because
0: he did the Sound and Vision tour. On the Sound
3: and Vision he? tour, precisely. So after, I, th- I think he kind of thought at the time Sound and Vision was going to be his last tour anyway. So I th- think he, he thought, well, yeah, I'll do all the hits. And he announced that he was never going to play the hits again. And that sort of, I guess, became a selling point for that tour that, you know, people would go along for one last time and see the hits. So lo and behold, a few years later, he's touring again um, and he's playing, obviously, his current stuff, but he has to play some other stuff as well. So he started picking non-hits, let's say. Um, so he, he started doing songs like Quicksand, which he hadn't done on the hits tour and, yeah, some some more obscure um, older stuff, but by the time he got around to reality, he'd kind of gone past that, and he was now playing Rebel Rebel and Ziggy Stardust, and you know all all the crowd pleasers, um, and and you know that's that 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 made for a much better concert. And it was really like he was doing really long shows on those tours, like um, three hours, three and a half hours. But certainly, at that time, he was you know clearly very happy with life, very happy with to be performing. Um, and the concerts were amazing.
1: And yet that cloud had only bloomed for minutes When I looked up, it vanished on the air That was
0: Dara O'Carney talking to me there, and I'll post a link to the original piece that he wrote on his blog uh, on my website. And I'll also try and post uh links to a few other bits and pieces that I've referred to in this podcast as well. Did you notice incidentally that when Dara asked whose dad it was that used to be on the Adam and Joe show, I said, yes, that was my dad. listen from what
3: I remember, one of you guys used to get your dad on?
0: That's right, that was my dad Nigel that was Butster. your dad was, yeah.
3: yeah well yeah, that was the part he particularly liked I think he uh, he he used to get a kick out of that yeah.
0: That was really just an excuse to remind you of the fact that Bowie used to watch the Adam and Joe show. There's a good possibility that he thought it was all terrible, except for my dad, but uh, hey, he saw it, right? Now, before we conclude part one of this two-part Bowie wallow, let's hear from my guest on next week's podcast, actor, writer and theatre director, Kathy Burke. Kathy loves the reality TV show Big Brother and was watching Channel 5's Celebrity Big Brother the week that Bowie died. One of the guests in the house, along with the usual selection of reality stars and variously damaged celebrities, was Bowie's former wife, Angela. Kathy, who's never missed an episode of Big Brother, was transfixed.
4: Well, so what happens is, is Angie Bowie is in the house, in the Big Brother house, and she has been told privately that David Bowie has passed away the night before. Meanwhile, one of the other house residents is David Guest. Is a, David Guest is a house resident, yeah. and David Guest is poorly. So David Guest has been advised by Big Brother to go back to bed, so he does. Angie Bowie calls two of the guys into the diary room to tell them the news of the death of David Bowie. And she's going to need a little bit of looking after. But she doesn't want anybody else to know. So they're fine. They're absolutely... Did the producers tell her not to tell anyone else in the house? No. I think that was her decision. Right. Was that she just wanted to tell two people so that she could process it privately... And then would maybe reveal later on. Anyway, in the meantime, there's a woman in there, a black woman called Tiffany, who I didn't know who she was. She's, no, she's a New Yorker. She reality show. Okay, she's in a reality yeah, yeah, yeah. show over there. You see, great, great girl. I, I think she's wonderful, magic. But anyway, so Tiffany spots that something isn't quite right with Angie Bowie. And she says, are you okay? You look a bit... And Angie Bowie's like, yeah, yeah. You can see there's something not right. And she went, yeah. She went, "Okay, I'll talk to you. She sits Tiffany down. And she says, you're not to say a word to anybody else. And Tiffany says, of course not. Of course I won't. What's the matter? And Angie Bowie says, David's dead. (laughs) So Tiffany, quite rightly, reacts in a way uh, that she is completely horrified and completely freaked out because she's just been in the bedroom with David Guest and he's got a duvet over him. (laughs) (laughs) So she... But Angie Bowie doesn't... So in Angie Bowie's head, she's thinking, oh, my God, I didn't realise she was such a David Bowie fan. Yeah. (laughs) I I must calm her down.
0: Right, because she's so going... And her legs are buckling. I
4: mean, she cannot believe it because she's completely freaked. Because as far as she's concerned, there's a dead body in the room next door. And at first she thinks that she's joking, right? So she's like, why would you say that? Yes, because I suppose because there are tasks where they have to wind each other up and all sorts of stuff. So then Tiffany takes it upon herself, I have to share this. This is not something we keep to ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so she goes out and tells the rest of the house that David Guest is dead. And this causes all sorts of mayhem. Well, I was, I couldn't breathe from laughing. And also, I mean, it was quite a sort of extraordinary day that day when, when the news came out that Bowie had died. Sure. And I was sort of on Twitter all day. Looking at people's, um, you know, tributes to him and people finding beautiful photographs. And so the whole day was about Bowie, you know. And then for it to end with this extraordinarily hilarious fucking, you know, miscommunication and misunderstanding, it felt quite Bowie ish. It felt very, it was art in all its forms, you know. And, um, I just fucking loved it. I loved every moment of it, you know.
0: Kathy Burke, who, as I said, will be talking about her career thus far in next week's podcast. That's it for part one of my Bowie Wallow. Part two is available to download now and features director Johan Rank talking about working with Bowie on the video for Lazarus, Jonathan Ross chatting with me about why Bowie's loss has been felt quite so keenly and Gaz Coombs with a Bowie cover that is quite a peach it is quite literally a peach it's not literally a peach it is metaphorically a peach thanks very much to Dara O'Carney, Kathy Burke and to my new podcast production support team especially Seamus Murphy Mitchell thanks to Omar Adam as well for additional editing Hope to see you in part two. Till then, I'm going to leave you with a slice of Sunday afternoon at Buckles Towers. This was a couple of weeks after Bowie died, and my old friend Dan was visiting. After lunch, as he so often does when he's round, he sat down at the uh, shitty piano that we have and started channeling some classic David. I took out my phone, put it on the side, and pressed record. So I hope you'll feel that you're just sat on the sofa with me and Rosie, my wife's in the next room trying to get the children to do their homework, and we're just listening to Dan. Um, sorry, can you just, would you mind using a coaster for the, yeah, thanks. Also, is there any way you could put some clothes on? It's just Sundays we we, we tend to wear clothes. It's cool. Just enjoy. Enjoy.
1: And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace.